All right, so season three starts next week with Natural Born Killers. I was debating whether or not to not do anything this week and just kind of take another week, but I decided, what the heck, I'm going to unlock one more bonus episode just to kind of fill this gap between seasons. So I'm unlocking Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And again, check back next week. I have a two-part episode. Natural Born Killers, I'm joined once again by Scott Wampler. After that, it's Valley Girl and a whole slew of things coming up. My bonus episodes in January are going to be Ted Demi's Who's the Man and Young Guns 2. So if you like these bonus episodes that I've unlocked these last few weeks, to continue to get more of these in the future, you want to check out www.patreon.com forward slash soundtracker. You can get two bonus episodes every month that way. And I promise you that 2023 has a whole bunch of good stuff in store. All right. I will see all of you next week with season three. Until then, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, enjoy. Ain't no use running, ain't nowhere to hide. The beast is coming and he's got you in his sights. He ain't gonna miss you and he ain't gonna mess around. A movie with original songs. The soundtrack I'm gonna track you down. Oh yeah! All right, everyone, welcome back. So we're doing a real people pleaser today. Today's episode is the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, and joining me is the co-host of the Weezer Bracket, Andrew Woods. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And so this is another one of those ones. So, uh, you know, I was talking to you beforehand. A lot of times I'll send a message to someone and be like, what movie do you want? And there's been probably 10 episodes now where it's been like somebody's either made perfect sense for an episode or I've seen someone talking about a movie that I want to do. And I'll message them and be like, you're coming on and you should come on and do this movie. And you were talking about how great the Ninja Turtles movie was recently on Twitter. And I, I really hadn't thought about this one as a possibility, but as soon as you were talking about it, I was like, this has a soundtrack. I was, you know, I know, I knew this is what we do in turtle power from watching the movie so many times, but like outside of that, uh, I wasn't really familiar with it, but that's kind of the fun in this is like digging into like soundtracks that I know exist and don't really know all that well. So I just messaged you. I was like, let's do turtles. And I'm really glad that you were like really open to doing it because this is such a fun movie. And uh, I don't know. What was your first experience with this? Like, were you, were you I don't know, because I'm 41, so. So I'm six years younger than you. So I was, te- I was three. I believe I went and saw the theaters. Uh, <laughs> I have a vague memory of it. Obviously, I remember watching the VHS as a kid over and over. I have, I think I have a more vivid memory of seeing two and three in theaters. But I mean, like, I was born in 1987. So Turtles is like, was everything to me as a kid. And see, yeah, you're right between my younger brothers are 84 and 89. So you fall right between that. And both of my brothers were like huge Ninja Turtles fanatics. So yeah, you're at that perfect age. You know, one of the things, and we'll obviously talk about this more when we talk about the movie itself, but one of the things that strikes me with this, because my my friend's kids about a year and a half ago, they're, you know, five years old in that area, four or five years old. And um, they, <laughs> they got really into the Ninja Turtles. They found a bunch of his stuff. And like, I did, I guess I hadn't realized that turtles have had such a long life. Like that. There were like, I I knew that there were like those Michael Bay movies. And like, I remember that like sort of a computer animated TMNT movie, but like, I didn't know that there was like the 2000 series. So turtles have had well, this extremely long life. 
Well, I think Nickelodeon bought them in like the mid two thousands and had a long running show, so that was a big thing too. Yeah, and and so like I, I sort of fell into this rabbit hole of like turtle stuff. I watched some of that two thousand series and uh, some other stuff that I'll mention when I do the further watching stuff at the end. But I came back to this movie, which I hadn't seen in a very long time, and like one of the things that I was struck by is this absolutely could have been like a cheap cash grab. They could have made it animated. You know, they could have oh. just done like a lazy animated movie, and this is what we got instead. It's oh, totally. It, like and like, I every time I rewatch it, I'm amazed it's good at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it, I feel like Turtles Two is probably more what we I, look as a 41 year old. Turtles Two is more what I would have expected the first Ninja Turtles movie to be like. And I like I have a soft spot for Turtles Two, but it's admittedly well, not very good. I'll be honest, when I was a kid, I, I preferred Turtles, uh, Secret of the News yeah, oh, so much. Because it's like it's more like the cartoon, you know? This, yeah, oh, 100%. But, you know, going back to it, like, this is a dark, a really fucking dark movie. I'll talk more about the, like, there. there's a, a, a another cut of this. It's like a holy grail out there that is, like, apparently even more violent. But I'll, I'll get to that here shortly. But, uh, you know, it's, and it's not, like, excessively violent. It's not, like, you know, it's not, like, blood spurts, and it's not, like, uh, the story of Ricky or something, where, like, there's heads getting crushed. And But, like, it's very harrowing for a movie made for children, you know? Like, well, you I think this, you, this movie used to scare me as a kid. Like, yeah. When I, was like, when I was, like, three or four, yeah, it was scary. Like, Especially the end when the shredder goes in the garbage compactor, that scared the shit out of me. <laughs> I had never considered you could die on one before. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> but okay, so the thing about this movie, and if for some reason you're like somebody who's listening to this who's like maybe too young for the turtles at this time, or which just weren't really into them, even if you weren't really into them, you'll understand this part. In 1990, the Ninja Turtles were this absolutely unstoppable force. Like the, the cartoon was huge, their toy line in in 1990 money over a four year period sold 1.1 billion dollars worth of merchandise. Uh, so obviously uh, that's insane. It's insane. Like uh, Kevin Eastman, like they're, they're those, those guys could have retired after like 1990, you know? Uh, well, then they have a falling out over it eventually. Yes, they did down the road. I don't know the details of that exactly what led to it, but yes, there was a falling out between uh, Laird and Eastman at some point. I, although I think they're, I think, that they're on good terms again, if I remember they correctly. They are. Uh, yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. I think, like, in the mid to late 90s, I forget if it was later, Eastman just wanted to walk away from it, and, like, he was just tired of it. And I think one of them kind of became the one who, like, was the keeper of the keys of the whole thing. When It kind of caused bad blood, especially because I think they sold... Uh, I think there's money involved. You know how it is. The, the usual, the usual thing that causes rifts between people making lots of money is is money. Yes, like always. Story is old as time. So, but the the fact that you know, so a movie obviously was like something that made perfect sense. That it was a live action movie, as I said earlier, was the real surprise. You know, because one of the ideas that was floated around early on was that it would follow a similar approach to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where the actors would be interacting with animated versions of the turtles, but it was scrapped in, you know, favor of pursuing performances and costumes, especially once they got Jim Henson's creature shop on board. I, I think it's like the last thing Henson was involved with in any way. He, I think he, he died like two months after the movie premiered. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, but the, so the film benefited what made it not feel like we were talking about not feeling like just like a simple cash grab is that, it took elements from the very adult and very early comic books, very dark comic books 
as well as the cartoon. So it like a kind of blended both of them. You got the core sort of goofy cartoon turtles, but in, in, in the original comic, and it's been a while since I've read it, but if I remember correctly, Shredder dies by falling off of a roof with like a bomb strap to him. You know, like they take that, they him falling off the roof at the end of the movie follows that beat for beat, except he doesn't land in a trash can. He's got like a bomb strap to him. And I mean, if there's any turtle heads out there who are mad that I'm misremembering this. I'm sorry. It's been probably 30 years since I read it, but, uh, you know, it, 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 yeah, it benefited from that. Still, though, when it released on March 30th, 1990, it came out to mediocre reviews because, you know, it, critics, if you look at some of the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, like some of them concede that it's well made, but it still to them felt like some sort of attempt to sell toys. And I, mean, uh, I, I can imagine it would be hard to be a self-respecting like adult critic back in the 1990 and have to give this movie a positive review. So I, can, <laughs> I, I can kind of see why. It's just like it's a it's a it was a ridiculous thing back then. Oh, I, oh, I I know I I'm not faulting critics for it, you know, but like they were wrong. <laughs> they are wrong, but I can also yeah, I, but I can under, I understand why I think. Well, the, despite all that, the movie opened. It was a huge hit, huge hit. It opened first place with 25 million on its opening weekend. It went on to make back $202 million on a $13 million budget, which made it the highest grossing independent film ever, ever made all the way up until Blair Witch came out. Like it held that record for a long time. And uh, yeah, just this, again, the turtles were completely unstoppable in 1990. So the top 10, the week that it came out, number one was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Number two was Pretty Woman. <laughs> number three was The Hunt for Red October. It's a good weekend. Number four was Driving Miss Daisy. Number five was Opportunity Knox, which was, I had to look that one up because I couldn't remember. And then I, it's Dana Carvey's first starring role that he had. Uh, I have no clue what that is. Yeah, I remember, I've never seen it, but I like remember commercials from when I was a kid. I think it was on like cable all the time too, back after it came out. Number six was Joe versus the Volcano. Number seven was Nuns on the Run, which I also didn't remember at all, but it has uh, Robbie Coltrane and Eric Idle. I, I think I've seen that movie. I've not seen it, but I think I'm, a, I'm familiar with that like poster. My, my main memory of Robbie Coltrane is that he was in that movie, The Pope Must Die, that caused a lot of issues, and they put the word, the letter T on the end, <laughs> changed it to The Pope Must Die. <laughs> that was like their fix. Uh Number eight was House Party. Oh, number nine was Lord of the Flies, and number ten was My Left Foot. All right. So as far as the movie goes, like I said, some background stuff here. So in the 1980s, this is this is there's some really interesting stuff in here. So Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird got a film treatment from uh, Roger Corman's New World Pictures. So the idea, this is insane, by the way. The idea was to have the turtles played by four comedians who were popular at the time. <laughs> ready for this list? Sam yeah, Peterson. Bobcat, Goldthwait, Billy Crystal, and fucking Gallagher. I can't imagine Crystal doing it. Like, like, like Crystal is the one who seems like he'd be way too big for that. That's, well, that's the, yeah. This was a treatment from Roger Corman. I'm sure that none of these guys even for these four. Well, Sam Kinison, I guess, obviously, the, none of these guys know that this is a thing that happened. I'm sure. Like, this is oh, probably yeah. a fact that they have no idea about. They were probably never actually approached to do this, but it was an idea that Corman had. Uh, but the plan was to have them dress in turtle shells and then have their arms and legs painted green. There was another treatment that took the turtles into R-rated territory and included a scene with partially nude nuns on roller skates fighting the Ninja Turtles. So thank God none of those things ever came to be. Um, I kind of would like to see that second one. <laughs> I would like it if you mixed it with the first one and it was the turtles were played by Gallagher and Sam Kinison and Billy Crystal. I mean, it would be awful, but I would watch that. <laughs> 
the turtles were created by Jim Henson's Creature Shop, and they, as we said earlier, one of his last before his death. Henson was actually very unhappy with the level of violence in the finished film. He was really proud of how much he helped advance the art of animatronics, but he thought the violence in it was excessive, pointless, and not his style. However, the director of the film, Steve Barron, had directed the pilot episode of Storyteller, uh, which set the tone for that entire series, and Henson was a part of that. And he agreed to do this as like a kind of a return favor for Baron. So on other facts about the costume to help disguise how cumbersome and slow the costumes were dialogue scenes were shot at 23 frames per second. So that when they were played at normal speed of 24 frames per second, they appeared a bit sharper for the same reason. Fight scenes were shot at 22 or 23 frames per second to make it look. Cause they, that's one of the things that I noticed is the fight scenes in this look fantastic for in those turtle shells. And that was a combination of having like really great athletes or really great, stunt actors in these costumes but also of a little bit of camera trickery to make it work. Well, you can tell them you can see them shooting around it. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's 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 <laughs> how else were they supposed to do it? Like I, I think it's cool that we got it to look as good as I, it did shooting around, you know? No, no. Don't don't take me wrong. I it, it's amazing it looks as good as it does. It looks better than you could imagine. It looks better than it would look today in some ways. Like, well, I know it looks better. I saw those. I saw the Michael Bay ones. Oh, did you see? I have not braved those. How how uh, how are they? First one's really unwatchable and awful. The second one's kind of fun. The second one is fun enough that like, and they tap into the old cartoon. Like, it has like Bebop and Rocksteady in it, and like like almost like cartoon nineteen uh, nineties cartoon Bebop and Rocksteady that I had a good enough time. But, okay. Uh, the, that first one was just unbearable. I just couldn't get over how they looked. Like, it's not even one of those, oh. like, my childhood things. They just look creepy. No, they just look awful. I mean, it's just a bad design all around. <laughs> so another little thing they had to do, because the interior scenes in Wilmington were shot close to an airport, there were problems. This is There were problems with the radio-controlled animatronic heads, and they would actually receive signals from the control tower, and it would cause the facial expressions to go into involuntary spasm. So that like kept fucking up the shooting schedule of the movie. Robin Williams is actually the reason that Judith Hogue is April O'Neil in this because they were co-starring in Cadillac man at the time when it was going into production. And Robin Williams was like a huge fan of the franchise. So he actually brought her his comic book collection of turtles comics to like get her to be a part of this movie. And uh, apparently the reason she did not get invited back for the sequels, because she also had a lot of complaints about the violence in the movie. And they were just like, well, don't come back, which is kind of fucked. Cause she's a great April O'Neil. She's good. So as far as the actors who portrayed the turtles, they also, all of them had cameos in the film. Josh pies who played Raphael is the passenger in the back of the taxi cab right after Ralphie all rolls across the hood. He's also the only physical actor who provided his own character's voice. Funny thing about him too, is he was claustrophobic. So as soon as the takes would end, he would like rip his mask off so that he would like not have a, a freak out inside of that costume. Being in those costumes all day was probably a fucking nightmare. <laughs> uh, Michael Sisti, who plays Michelangelo, is the delivery guy who brings the pizza to the sewer at the beginning. Leif Tilden, who plays Donatello, is the foot messenger who meets April in the subway station. And David Foreman, who plays Leonardo, is one of the gang members in the warehouse during Casey's fight with Tatsu towards the end. Okay, so talking about the darker cuts. In the script and novelization, the young boy that Tatsu attacks was supposed to die from the beating. So... They added in post-production the sounds of him breathing and the other kids saying that he would be all right just to save the movie ratings board from objecting after they had objected to the scene in the French version of the movie. They don't, they don't keep that. He dies in the movie. So the French version of this has the kid dying. The, uh, according to Josh Pies, who played Raphael, 
in the uh, podcast, I was there too. The director was actually fired near the end of production, as was editor Sally Menke, who has gone on to collaborate with Quentin Tarantino a bunch. This is the cut that I'm talking about. This was her feature film debut, and she was removed from the final cut, as was Steve Barron, because they thought that it was way too dark. And apparently they had no idea how they were going to make it a family-friendly film when they got what footage they had to get what we see now. And that's kind of like a holy grail, the Menke cut. Like, what what was that version like? But it'll never see the light of day. I'm sure that that is like... I forgot that Sally worked on this. I, I had heard that before, but I totally forgot about that. Yeah, it's it's, you know... It's one of those, but who knows? Every time I'm like something, it will never happen. Like the the original ending of Phase Four, Saul Bass is like ant movie that is fucking really incredible. That got dug up recently, and it's like restored, and they just put out a 4K Blu-ray that has it back in the movie. So never say never, I guess. But at the same time, though, okay, let me ask you: Would you be interested in that cut even at this point? Like a, a like a a more violent version of this, or would you like to keep the memory as you have it of this movie? I'd watch it. I don't need it. Um, I, I, I mean, like it's kids film. I don't know why we need it to be even more violent. I, when I think of the violence, I think about the UK cuts where they had to cut, cut around all the uh, weapons. You know about that, right? Yeah. The nunchucks, like, yeah, <laughs> nunchucks are like illegal. Like there's like a huge, like anti nunchuck thing in the UK. Correct. hundred percent. Yeah. That's it. It's yeah. all the nunchucks. <laughs> yeah they had to cut around was it just the nunchucks or was it the size uh, yeah they it's the size too but I, as a kid i was obsessed with the idea that they were like they wouldn't let nunchucks in uk films and like i was i was weirdly knowledgeable about that even as a kid for some reason <laughs> the uk is weird like the video nasties thing and like they're they're uh, you know you hear a lot of things about how the u.s is puritanical compared to other countries but like i, mean, I think maybe it comes down to like we're puritanical about sex and not violence, whereas oh, other yeah. countries are puritanical about like the violence in movies. Oh, I mean, yeah, it, it's definitely that, so, especially in the UK, especially with the video nasty stuff, because the stuff that, like some of those video nasties aren't even that bad when you go back and look at them. No, not at all. I've seen, I remember like getting a whole list of those when like it got to a point where I could start like tracking down movies that I had never seen, like Holy Grail type of movies. And like, I feel like the video nasty thing made me not like quite a few like again as a horror guy quite a few movies on like first viewing because i was like whoa this is gonna be and then i watched it and i was like that's it and then like going back to them later like oh yeah these are actually pretty solid horror movies they're just not what i was expecting going into them and uh yeah i like builds up and i feel like it works the opposite way with that too like if i were a kid in the uk i would want to see the nunchuck version which really isn't any different than the version they were presented it just cut around the weapons but like it would I just make imagine well, I've never seen it, but I just imagine it looks awkward. Like, I can't imagine how you cut cut that. Like, it just has to look awful. It's like in E.T. when they put the walkie-talkies in the <laughs> cops' hands instead of guns, but with nunchucks. Well, you know, I was it was I was at a bar the, the other week, and uh, Bad Boys 2 was on. And it's the finale of Bad Boys 2. It's like when, uh, you know, when they, they kill the bad guy and he falls and his body just blows up. <laughs> yeah, like, I was watching. I was watching it in a bar. It, it was basically unintelligible. Like it, it was incoherent and just unwatchable. Wait, they had like edited it? Yeah, of course. It was like because it's on TNT. Yeah, but that's weird. I, anymore, it feels like they really don't even edit things for TV. And I, but yeah, I guess I don't. I think 
as much as we, we're pretty lax on that stuff now, watching a man's half of a man's body blow up, I think still doesn't fly <laughs> on uh, cable television. That's going to get you some angry letters. <laughs> <laughs> okay, a few more things here. So when Raphael got knocked into the trash can by Casey Jones in the movie, the animatronics inside the head caved in and actually broke the stuntman's nose. So in the movie, when you watch that part, when Raphael gets up from the trash can, he actually grabs toward, and I watched this watching it, he grabs towards his nose area before the shot cuts because they kept that little bit where it smashed his nose. And so they ended up replacing that stuntman with one of the foot soldiers, Ken Scott. And Ken actually did a lot of the major scenes in the movie also as one of, the, he like the main foot soldier that you see getting beat up is going to be Ken Scott. He like did a whole bunch of the, like when you saw a one foot soldier front and center, like the nunchuck off the face for Michelangelo, like it was always the same guy that was the stuntman that took those particular beatings, the marketing blitz. So you say you've watched the VHS a million times. Do you have the VHS with the pizza hut commercial at the beginning? Uh, I think I, not anymore, but I think I did. I don't remember. Okay. My friend whose kids got recently into Turtles has an old tape that does not have that on there. And he thought I was nuts when I was explaining it to him. But I, I, I talked about this commercial in the episode, like one of the two, I forget, one of the recent episodes that I did. I talked about this commercial. Oh, Batman. We're talking about marketing blitzes. I still know all of the words to that song. And I guarantee you, anyone listening to this particular episode who watched it on VHS knows that too. I play right field. Like it was in. It burned into my head. So effective advertising on Pizza Hut's part. But the funny thing is they paid $20 million in marketing for the campaign for this movie. And yet in the movie, it was all Domino's Pizza. Yeah, all Domino's Pizza. (laughs) You got the product placement. And then one last thing. So when the movie came out, major movie studios like Walt Disney Pictures, Columbia Pictures, MGM, Orion, Paramount, uh, and Warner Brothers all turned down the film for distribution because they were worried this was coming off of the heels of masters of the universe, another, you know, toy cartoon line that was made into a film that tanked just two years before this, they're pitching this around. So it finally found distribution through new line who at that point were sort of known for like sort of art house, uh, art, like cheap art house fair and, uh, like low budget. And Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. And Nightmare on Elm Street, the house Freddie built. And, uh, so they, they took a chance on this and and they won big time because it was a huge hit. All right, so let's let's chat about the movie here. So one of the things that I've always liked about this, and I think it's like every redheaded kid has this sort of quality about them, but Michael Turney, who plays Danny, like the first person you meet in the movie, is such a great, like, whatever dad, gosh, sort of looking teenager look to him where he would like be the kid who was like always mad at his dad who's not, like he's got the Sid Vicious shirts. Like he's like a perfectly cast little like, shithead teen who's like going through that age where he's mad at his dad about everything and rebelling it's just that he does it by hanging out with the foot clan in this movie i mean he's great and he also has a scene uh you know who plays one of the foot clan leaders in this movie are you talking about young sam rockwell sam rockwell sorry i didn't mean to i didn't mean to go away from a danny there but i was just no, thinking no. About that. no 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 uh, i love sam rockwell in this it's so funny seeing he's got that like shitty teenager mustache <laughs> young sam rockwell you can already tell he's sam rockwell he's, he already has the, the sam rockwell mannerisms yeah he i mean he looks just like he does now just younger and i he also has like the best like <laughs> see you've got this ostensibly this group of like really troubled kids. And what do they do when they go to their like really cool, like arcade that doesn't exist? Smoke all. Yeah. Menthol or regular. (laughs) (laughs) 
Which I, you know, I suppose, I guess, because this movie sort of paints God, like it sort of builds a city like Gotham, where it's like a a a city that's got this criminal underbelly going on. You know, like it's well, like well, that's one of my favorite things about this movie. Is I think it's a really good depiction of like late '90s New York, like that kind of gross pre Giuliani New York that was that hadn't fully been reformed yet. Yeah, like the old uh, when you think like it was like a bunch of theaters down on. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's. Which I love. I'm a huge fan of like 70s and 80s movies that take place in New York City for that. Oh, me too. That I love it. The basket cases like film like guerrilla style in that in that particular area. But yeah, and then they they let you know right up front that this is not the cartoon because one of the first words that you hear Turtle say, if not the first word, is Raphael saying "damn." Like that's I remember as a kid <laughs> being like, "Whoa." <laughs> Well, that's one of my favorite things about the movie is it really does find a nice like middle ground between the cartoon and the uh, original comic. Well, yeah, because after that damn scene, you get like then it comes down to like them being the cartoon turtles, like Major League Butt Kicking is back in town, and like the the I love I love the the credit stinger in this when it's like the shadow of. I, I believe it's Michelangelo leaping into the air, and all you see is the shadow, and then like the uh, the turtles logo flies at the screen. Oh, it's great. And it's the it's the cartoon logo too, isn't it? It's yes. Like the, uh, they use the, the logo. Yeah, and like again, I know not to beat this into the ground, but the turtles' costumes are just so good. Like they're so good. The like the the fact that it was all the heads were all done with animatronics. Like the mouths all move exactly with what the characters are saying. Like there's no well, parts where it doesn't add up or match up. Well, it, the movie wouldn't work without them. Like it would just be it would be dead in the water. It's like you mentioned the uh, Masters of the Universe uh, movie and why it failed. Well, number one, that movie's unwatchable and bad. It looks like shit. Like, and I think this movie, the Turtles were such a fucking force at the time, and this movie just had to be watchable. And not only is it watchable, it's kind of good. So, that, of course, it was going to succeed. The Masters of the Universe movie is such a weird one, too. Like, it's this because, okay, there's the problem with the Masters of the Universe is it took the cartoon and then tried to do something different with it. Like, we're going to take these characters but put them in like a present day universe and the, movies would always do that back then they would they were never faithful to which is kind of funny because we're, we're at a time when like comic book movies are, just, are almost too faithful to like the source material <laughs> 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 where, it's, where it's gotten boring but like back way back then it was always like that kind of shit where it's like let's take the, this thing and bring it to modern times or something like that yeah, it was like a, a terrible screenwriting technique. And and then, so like by the end of that scene, like they're in the sewer, the movie's been, what, four minutes at this point? And like, yeah. you really haven't met the turtles, but you see them interacting. And I feel like if you went to the movie, like if you're an adult who got dragged to this with your kids, you would know the personality of all four turtles by the end of that little sequence. Like Leonardo is sort of like the, the goody two shoes up front. Leonardo was actually my favorite growing up because blue's my favorite color. So that was like, I was a Leonardo boy growing up. But um. I, well, I think a lot of boys actually like Leonardo because he was supposed to be the leader. So the idea of being the leader of the clan was kind of a cool, cool idea. See, I always felt like people thought he was like a, a like a, a stuffy dipshit. I thought that was yeah, kind of what I always he is. Well, he is because you have to have someone push against Ralph, and which is the whole point. Because yes, there has to be that inner conflict, or it doesn't work. And I love John Pies, the actor, is actually the one who made the decision to give Raphael the Brooklyn accent. And it's fucking beautiful in this it's movie. A great like, choice. Just makes his character. But like, you know, Donatello's kind of the nerd. Like, he doesn't know, no, Bossa Nova. Like, it's just, you know what each character is by the end of that scene. And it's like great 
it's not an exposition dump. It's just seeing how they interact and like, okay, well, I know the personality of all four of these turtles and we haven't even gotten out of the credit sequence yet. It's just tremendous. So, so you were a Leonardo kid. You were, that's, that was your favorite? Yes, absolutely. Who was yours? Oh, Michelangelo. I was always a Michelangelo person. I feel like he's the popular answer. My brother was a Raphael guy. Because I want to be a party dude. <laughs> <laughs> Even as a kid, I, I, the idea of the jokester who's the party dude that never takes anything seriously was like, so. I just gear, I just went towards that. Let me ask you, what's the last time you watched any of the old 80s cartoons? Uh, I put on the pilot recently just because because what, what happened was uh, Shredder's Revenge came out and it kind of k- kicked in my, this uh, interest in it. So I watched the movie and I put on the original pilot. That game's incredible, by the way. That game is fucking incredible. It's it's so much better than it has any right to be. And it's like replayable too. Like I want to go through, I actually haven't finished it yet because I know it's short and I'm like somebody who likes to take my time with things. So I've been kind of like slowly working my way. Like I'll beat a level and then like, I won't play this for a few days, but like, I want to go back and try each character and like the unlockables. Yeah. It's, it's a fucking amazing game. Well, have you, have you played it through with one character at least? No, I still haven't even finished it yet. Because as soon as you get through one character, you get Casey Jones. That's why. I, I know. I know that he's an unlockable. Isn't there one more unlockable? I'm not sure. I, at the moment, I think it's just Casey's the only unlockable. But okay. I've only, yeah, but I'm not sure. They've talked about DLC. Maybe that's where they talked about it. Oh, I'm sure they will. Yeah. yeah. So we talked about the turtles, but what about how great Splinter looks in this? It looks great. I mean, as somebody who owns pet rats now, like I realize they're fancy rats and don't look like him, but like. It's just such a, a joy to see. And I just love how he's like the old man dealing with teenagers that that like, you know, when they play tequila when he's trying to talk and he's like the, <laughs> cutting, the, cutting the pizza on his head when they get it down there. The domino after this sweet Domino's product placement. But as far as perfect casting goes, so there were talks of Casey Jones at one time. And the, the, again, this is probably like I said, Gallagher and like Sam Kennison and then probably had no idea that this was like a thing, but they had like early development stages talked about like Johnny Depp and a few other ones as Casey Jones, but no one, no one will ever be as good of a Casey Jones as Elias. Is it Cotillas? I always fuck his name up. I always say Cotillas. Okay. Elias Cotillas is in this. He is the perfect Casey Jones. Like that is, it is one of the most incredible pieces of comic book cartoon character to screen castings I've ever seen in my life. Has he done anything before this? I actually, I don't remember anything before pre this for 10 minutes i don't if it was it was probably just small roles but this is it's funny too because this is what made like i feel like he never had like he's a very dependable character actor you know like he's been in a ton of shit i mean he's leading man status but like this definitely like made his career no but there's some he's in some truly great movies and gifts i mean he's great in crash you know one of my favorite things he ever did is when he just shows up for that one scene in the sopranos but it's like maybe it's my favorite scene in The Sopranos. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. The intervention. It's like the fact that they brought him in just for that. I've always loved. Yeah, it's it's he's a respected actor. So this wasn't like you see somebody show up for one scene like that, and it's kind of one of those like where sometimes it might just be like he must have needed work. But this is absolutely like The Sopranos creators coming to him and being like, "Yeah, you're going to do this scene for us." And uh, yeah, no, it's awesome. The thi- funny thing that I remember him from is. Um, <laughs> One of the Look Who's Talking sequels. He plays like the shithead brother in which one of the Look that? Is, is it like Which one? The second or the third one? He might even have been the third by that point. I don't know. Look, I just, look Who's Talking Now, I believe that one is. With the dog. <laughs> with Earth and, yes, Earth look, and Danny DeVito doing the dog voice, the dog and cat voices or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, wait, was Roseanne with, 
I thought Roseanne was the voice of the girl in the in the sequel. That's right. See, I'm I'm mixing up my my <laughs> look who's talking lore. <laughs> she's the she's the sister in look who's talking too. That's right. That's right. That I'm gonna waste time looking up who plays the dog in part three, but there's it's it's animals in the third one. I swear, Danny DeVito it, has a voice it, in one of it's them. It's definitely it's definitely animals because the two children are now actual children who talk like actual talk, so they have to use animals to be like the. Uh, cute little thing that talks the first the first look who's talking is actually one of those like somewhat charming movies that i watched a whole bunch when i was a kid but i I haven't seen it since i was a kid whether or not i would feel that way now i have no idea but well i have a weird thing i have a weird theory about that movie let's hear it i don't know if this is going way off topic here i'm fine with off topic on this i have this theory that that is amy heckling's most personal movie Okay, let's, let's. Is there? A, is there? What, what's your? What's your? What's your backup for that? I think it's the movie about her relationship with Harold Ramis and how Harold Ramis abandoned her, and she was left to raise her kid. That. That's a pretty great theory. Yeah, and no one ever talks about that, but I, I, it totally like lines up if you know about her. You know, like because Ramis denied being the the father of that kid for years. Wow, I had that. <laughs> This is funny because I was just saying I haven't watched Look Who's Talking, and in my head I was kind of like, I should probably go back and revisit that at some point here in the near future. And now I'm like absolutely going to, but with and that the, thought in my head. And, and, and there was a guy who, I forget who it was, who came in and was the father of that kid, basically the John Travolta character in the movie. And like, so there's like, it's really interesting if you th- if you think of it that way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewatch Look Who's, you just added, you just made Look Who's Talking like a very dark <laughs> <laughs> a movie about Bruce Willis as a talking, or Bruce Willis voicing a talking baby. Did I get that? It was Bruce Willis, right? I didn't fuck that one up. I mean, it's uh, Bruce Willis is the talking baby. George Segal is basically the guy who leaves her. And uh, yeah, uh, John Travolta is the cab driver that picks her up and kind of takes an interest and helps her out. Okay, see, so yeah, I'm I, Christie Alley is the main. Is the, yeah, I remember Christie Alley and John Travolta, but for see, see, this is why I need you here because in my head it was John Travolta that got her pregnant, and then it was about him like learning to become a father or something. Or, no, like, no, no, no. He's just the, he's just he was just a cab driver who, who like drove her and took an interest in her and becomes kind of the father of the family. Okay, okay. So that's if Luku's, I, you know, it's funny because someone just recently asked me if Luku's talking had a soundtrack and it does not. But as I'm sitting here, I'm like, it's too bad because we pretty much just like, did did a small Luku's talking chat here. <laughs> it's going to be a dual episode. So, but yeah, no, Elias Cotillas is Casey Jones. So I love his like first reaction to like meeting. He had a ton of funny reactions in this movie to like seeing shit that like he refuses to believe that he's seeing a big turtle. Like he like, I hate punkers. Like he thinks he's a punk and like Raphael going nuts when he's called a freak. And, uh, you know, when he goes back, I feel like the heart of this particular movie is the Raphael and splinter relationship is like the, the beating heart of this particular movie. Like as much as maybe Leo and Raphael too, but like Raphael's kind of the main character in this. Well, I always, I think every good turtle story has that center around Raphael. Cause you have him at, he's the, you know, he's the one who's always pushing back. He's the one who's uh, the most has always has the most conflict in himself and with everyone in the in the group. Yeah, I, I again, I, I you know, I always like when it's centered around Leonardo because he's my favorite. But begrudgingly, at forty one, I can admit that you're one hundred percent correct about that. Well, and he's like, I know Raphael's the party dude, but Raph or I mean Michelangelo's Michael the party dude, but Raphael is like just as funny as he is with his like biting sarcasm shit that he comes out with. So just in a different kind of way. So, you know, he's also like a sort of a comic relief character, even though he's pissed all the time. It's the best turtle stories are about Raphael and 
basically Leonardo um, not getting along and like basically Ralph being a little jealous that Leonardo sees himself as the leader and also kind of like his pushback as uh, the father figure splinter. Yeah. And, and they, it doesn't really, there's not really a lot of pushback between he and splinter in this particular movie. It seems like they kind of went the route of like him and Leonardo for this one, because really, I mean, you know, you see splinter is like their relationship. And then pretty shortly after that, splinter gets taken for the rest of the movie so you don't really get to delve into it too much with this one but but yeah you get that first glimpse of shredder and i like the way shredder even though you can it is funny that this blades on his hands you can see them like flopping around at certain times in this like they're not they're not secure on his wrist at all like they just kind of like flop around at certain points while he's moving but yeah he's appropriately you know for the villain he's appropriately menacing like sees April on TV, sends the foot to take her out. The chief of police actor in this movie is a tremendous, like I always love when they can nail a guy who looks like he'd be like a dopey chief police, chief of police. Who's like constantly mad and like I, two steps away from having a stroke. <laughs> I, to- I totally believe that dude. He, he may actually have been a cop at one time. It seems like a lot of those guys were cops before they got into acting. When you look up their backstory. I also like the guy who plays uh, Danny's father, her, her boss. I kind of like that actor. He reminds me of like the dad from Alf, kind of, or like the dad from Hey Dude. Like he's like he's a got a little bit of that. He's got like a little Stephen Toblowski in him, I think. That too, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's and he seems like a good hapless dad, where like he doesn't quite know what to do. Like his son's rebelling, and he doesn't quite know because like I forget. Do they mention the mom? Like there's obviously not a no. Mother I, I don't think I don't think there was ever any time in the movie to mention a mother figure that. Okay, you just kind of figure that she's either dead or she left. Like, she's not there. And, uh, you know, so like a single father who's like raising his kid who's hit that really... Look, I work... I don't know exactly how old he was supposed to be in this. Like, I'm guessing... These kids always look older than they're supposed to be playing. I'm guessing he's probably supposed to be, what, like, what, 14 or something in this Yeah, room. I would say 14 would be what my guess. I work in the middle school sometimes here when I do my winter work teaching and um it's the worst fucking age in the world <laughs> like, oh yeah i mean i say this like i love the kids there and like i've told them that though like you're you're a really bad age right now you know like, like what do you mean <laughs> like, i was a terrible age when i was your age it's a terrible age it's a terrible time to be like, <laughs> no matter how good of a kid you are you're that is your worst yeah it's like t- 13 to like the 12 to 14 is just a terrible time to be a person <laughs> like, well it's that time when you start you kind of start like becoming aware of yourself and you're not happy about it. And then it makes you just like surly and, and miserable. And like, it, it sucks. The foot comes and attacks April O'Neil on the subway. And Raphael comes and saves the day. And I love, I was talking about how he's funny with his like sarcasm. I, one of the lines that like still makes me laugh is like, I thought it'd redecorate a couple of throw pillows, a TV news reporter, like, <laughs> sarcastic way of, but I love April's reaction to like when she sees them and she's like, terrified and convinced it's a dream and they can't figure out like like she's trying to piece together why she's dreaming about like turtles and a rat and like it's she's trying she's getting close to to like giving herself like a a way out of believing that she's seeing this but it just never quite connects for her uh she's really good in that part where she's like playing somebody who well is seeing five foot tall turtles who speak and they're like tiny yet full human grown rat grandfather as you would think it was if you didn't know any better like it's very funny yeah yeah it's a it's a hell of a scene and 
Because she she experiences all the turtles first, and then Splinter comes in, and that really throws her over the edge, right? <laughs> right, right. Like she's she's kind of accepting that she's surrounded by turtles, and then the giant rat shows up. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one step too far. <laughs> but the old footage of them, there's you get two sequences in this where it's like Splinter's telling a story, and it gets all black around them, like those old photos where it's like backlit and black behind somebody, and then. It, like the old like family photos that you see sometimes and like the super eight, the way that they shoot the scenes on super eight where they're like tiny turtles growing up and like seeing them learning karate. And they look so fucking weird and freakish when they're like supposed to be like, Pizza! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that's almost, there's almost disconcerting. Like that's where the, the puppetry becomes like, it's like some dark crystal shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I love the switch to super eight. Like it's just such a fucking awesome it- it's really effective. It, it actually, actually, it, it's really effective. But I, I like too how like they go with April and it just cuts to they're 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 friends. Like they've immediately bonded with April O'Neil in her apartment. Like they're having a good time, and Michelangelo is doing like really awful impersonations. But it's like they have charmed the pants off of April O'Neil. Like she is like their friend for life now, and it it you don't have to see it happen. Like it's very believable that like these four goofballs would be able to charm April O'Neil, who's kind of, kind of, you know, goofy herself, I guess, like for being as serious as she is, she's got a goofy side and yeah, you don't have to see like this long bonding sequence. It just like they go in her apartment and it cuts to her cracking up at his admittedly would not be very funny to watch impersonations. <laughs> I mean, there's not much more you need. I mean, it's, un- it would be just be totally unnecessary to like have to sell that even more. I think. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't try to. They didn't have like yeah. a whole back and forth where like they had to like become her friend. Like it just happens. But we get to the big conflict in the movie after that. They get back to the headquarters. Uh, Splinter's kidnapped. Raphael lets out that absolutely hilariously huge, not hilarious, but like it's just a, it, just Viking scream that he lets out when he's. This is the thing that actually surprised me on this rewatch. I forget the last time I rewatched. I forgot how early it is that Splinter gets captured. Like, like when re- this watch, I was like, holy shit, that's real. Early. It's like 23 minutes in this movie. Yeah, he's he's sidelined the whole movie. I mean, the, yeah. the whole. And yeah, it's it's it was even now. Yes, it surprised me, too, because I and then it throws me. It surprises me because then Raphael being sidelined for a little bit happens earlier than I realized, too. Like that comes fairly quickly after this. Yeah. You know? Like you, you get the Raphael and Leonardo, big brother, little brother sort of dynamic. Yeah. Uh, Tatsu, Tatsu's a great head goon, by the way, when he absolutely destroys that kid. I, I like when they show like their headquarters and like it's again, they're smoking cigarettes and listening to MC Hammer at the coolest arcade on earth, like as they're doing like they're they're doing crimes. Like they're sitting around listening to MC Hammer. But yeah, Tatsu's a great head goon. Um the, Raphael goes out pouty and he just gets absolutely worked. But this is where those there's not a ton of fight sequences in this, but the ones that we do get look incredible given what they were working against. They said like Raphael and he's taking all those guys on when they end up inside the apartment. The apartment sequence is incredible. And when they end up trashing up April's apartment, like uh, taking and they drop down into the antique store. That whole set piece is actually pretty impressive. And I also like uh, Donatello again, being the smart one when he sees them all outside his reaction. Hey fellas, I don't know if this is such a good time. Uh, structurally speaking for your, oh, yeah, friend, yeah, yeah. You by the way, for some reason as a kid, I, I just believe that was something I just believed everyone had apparently everyone in new york they just lived above like an antique shop like that 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 are 
grandfather owned? Is that what was that the backstory she said? Yes. Imagine what, how much that piece of property would cost today in New York. <laughs> it would be. It would be. I mean. I don't know because the last time I was in New York was a while ago, and I remember talking to people about their apartment prices. And even then, I was, and this was like fucking fifteen years ago, being like, "Get the fuck out of here!" I can't imagine what something like but that would be. It now. sounds like she she owned it. It isn't like you know. I'm saying it's, not, it's like a piece of property that her grandfather owned, so she had this. Yeah, so it, she could sell that thing for and be cool. They kind of make a point too that she's not a very well paid reporter. A bunch of times in this. Oh yeah. <laughs> But yeah, you get that fight. Uh, Casey Jones shows up to save the day. Do you get a guy who literally straight up dies from being electrocuted in this scene? Like that, that they, I guess they don't show his body on the ground, charred and smoking, but like anyone who knows how electricity works knows that that foot soldier is fucking dead. Like he puts his ax right into an electrical cord and just stands there for like 10 seconds going as he's like, that guy's, that guy's not getting up. (laughs) That's, that's a character dead pretty shortly into the movie. That reminds me when I was a little kid when I saw uh, Home Alone Two, Lost in New York, and Lost in New York, and Marv gets electrocuted, and they do the thing where you can see his skeleton. That scared the shit out of me as a kid because even I knew he'd be dead. That's not yeah. that's not something you could just you know screw with some guy. But he's dead. He's dead. Kevin McAllister just killed a man. That's the thing about Home Alone 2 is that like there's a few things in Home Alone 1 that would have killed a person, but like Home Alone 2 is literally every trap that he sets is one that would kill <laughs> any He's throwing being. bricks at their head from like five stories above. That would they're not getting up from that. They get hit with what would probably be like a 200 pound lead pipe on a rope in the faces as they're walking upstairs. Like it would have it would have it would have literally popped their heads like watermelons. <laughs> Well, they're dead. <laughs> I'm too distracted with the electrocution scene. At at Daniel Stern has the best scream in the entire world. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Them. You know, I've seen I've seen like almost every horror film. I've seen some of the grossest, most violent shit. But there's nothing more violent to me than when he steps on that nail in the first movie. I don't care what I've seen. Nothing is a, is quite as effective as that to me. It's it's the sound. It's that sound that they play with it. You hear what sounds like skin puncturing, and it's disgusting. <laughs> But okay, oh, so man. the 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 turtles win. You know, Shredder's pissed. Tatsu Tatsu quote unquote injures a child. Um, but then they get to the farmhouse, and uh, that's where you kind of get like Casey more of Casey Jones being Casey Jones. I just love that he can't stop being sexist as like, and it's not like. <laughs> it's they make a point in the movie of what he's doing is not cool. Like it would like. I don't know. I feel like three years earlier, he would have been calling her like toots and babe. And it would have just been a thing without her standing up to him. But like, I love when he like, cannot like get it right. And like him breaking it to her that she's fired and the way he tries to do it gently. And like, it's just, he's so funny in this movie. I I love, I love Casey so much in this movie. And I love like his little, like the, 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 the friendship that he develops with them. Cause deep down, there's a part towards the end that I'll talk about where like he's boorish. Yes. But he's also deep down like a good-hearted guy. He just doesn't quite know how to show it when he's 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 just too much of a, a macho man. Because he get there's even that scene which talks the the what is it that he calls him where he's like this not even a, it could be like a gay panic joke. It's where uh oh he calls him claustrophobic and it doesn't Wait. delve into that territory. It's because he's just a fucking dumbass where he's like I oh, yeah. I've never even looked at another man like that's a very oh, yeah, funny yeah, part yeah, yeah 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 I but, uh, love that joke. <laughs> But yeah, it's they they end up, you know, Leonardo goes out and 
this is after Shredder realizes there's a connection between his past and the turtles. And you get the training montage, which you got to have in one of these movies. You get the training montage. Uh, Raphael comes to Leonardo goes out and meditates. Here's Splinter calls the others out. And I like how they can't take it seriously. At first, they're like roasting marshmallows around the fire. And Leonardo's got to be the stuffy one who's like, you know, pay attention. But, but the, it's it's still the, the whole farm sequence is amazing to me because it's weirdly contemplative in a way you would never expect to be in this movie. And it they're there for a pretty decent chunk of the movie. It's like a 15 minute section, I would say, 10, 15 yeah. minute section that they're like out at this like secluded farmhouse. And which I think I think it comes from the comics. Like I think that whole sequence is taken a lot of it's taken straight from the from the uh, Laird Eastman comic run. Well, another thing that I had never noticed this before, I kept this out of the trivia, but up until Raphael comes to, Michelangelo doesn't say a single word during that farmhouse sequence. He is absolutely yeah. silent that entire scene, which again, when you talk about how it's very meditative, like I think that's kind of why you don't get them. Jo- the comic relief comes from Casey Jones not knowing how to flirt with April O'Neil, but like the turtles themselves are very... Well, I think there is a sequence where Michelangelo grabs turtle wax. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's like one, <laughs> even then he can't help but joke around a little bit. <laughs> but it's a good visual gag. He knows how to sell it. Well, and then after they hear Splinter, they go back to their lair. And there's another very funny Raphael joke in there. When they see Danny inside that little uh, dresser or whatever, and they open it up. And he's like, don't shoot. And Raphael walks away. I don't think it's loaded, kid. Well, they're all holding like swords and nunchucks and size. Like, I love his like acerbic, sarcastic way of making jokes on this. But yeah, you get um, Casey Jones going undercover, which is very funny too. Like he's like undercover at this place where kids hang out. Like at first he's just kind of there like as himself. And then, you know, he beats up a foot soldier and takes his, his outfit. But you get the early, the second of the super eight movies, which is the very early splinter story. And I love probably my favorite visual bit in this entire movie is the shot of the tiny rat doing karate along with his master is such a funny little thing. Like, because is he a smart rat prior to getting oozed? Like it almost implies that he was like a mega smart rat prior to that happening. Whereas like that is, that is the funny thing. It does imply that apparently this is a rat that was unlike any other rat even before. And again, as rat as a rat owner, like they're 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 shockingly intelligent little things. But like you know, they're not gonna like do what I do. They're not going to like do karate because I'm doing karate outside of the cage. So yeah, he was always, I guess a bit special, <laughs> Yeah, but it comes down to a tale as old as time too. With this one, two guys getting mad about a, about a woman who like toxic masculinity coming through and, uh, you know, shredder kills master Yoshi and, uh, cuts off splinters ear. ear. And then he catches Danny taking off his headband. I thought, the first time I saw this, that Danny was going to die when he caught him taking off his headband. He's actually surprisingly chill about it. He doesn't even get that mad. He's just kind of like, he's mad, but not at Danny. He just realized yeah. that the turtles are back when he sees that he took that off and doesn't really do anything about it. He, but then he sends Tatsu to go kill Splinter. Now, this is where I talk about where Casey Jones, you see deep down, he's a good guy. And it's a good bit of facial acting by Elias Cotillas. He grabs Danny and he's kind of being like, you know, he's being Casey Jones. He's like, Hey, but it's me, you know? And Danny tells him they're going to kill splinter. And he gets this look on his face. You know, he's never met splinter, but he knows that splinters, the, the man who, or the rat, he doesn't know at the time who made the turtles who they are. And that's all he needs to hear. And like, that's again, deep down, he's a good guy. He runs in and sees splinter 
And I love his reaction when he sees Splinter, where he like stops for a second. And then he just kind of shrugs like, whatever, fuck it. I've, I've seen a bunch of crazy shit at this point. Let's just get you off of here. But uh, then you get that sweet moment where he's like getting him down and he's like, who are you? And he's like, I'm a friend. Like Casey Jones is great. He's a, he's, he's a dude you want on your side. Who doesn't want Casey Jones on their side? You um, know, that, that third movie is awful. Turtles, the, the, when they go back to field of Japan. But the one nice thing is they do bring back Casey. I was just talking about this on the farm with my buddy whose kids got into it recently. He went through all three. I have not been able to brave going back to watching part three again but i did say the one thing that i remembered liking about that was that they brought casey jones back but i also remember even at like what 12 years old or whatever when that came out thinking it was a humongous piece of shit i yeah the one thing i liked about two and three is i love their like lair that they find in the subway because like i don't know about how you were but as a kid i love the cool like lair or like a hidden spot that no one knew about Oh, I love it. I still love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't remember them even having. I don't remember anything from part three other than that Casey Jones was in it, and then well, they go back to feudal Japan. I don't remember a fucking second of that movie. Two comes from the, the layer comes from two, but they bring it into three. Uh, I think they they go back to feudal Japan because of some antique April finds, like some lamp. Do you remember this at all? No, you know what? I remember one other part from the movie, and it's the villain dies in the most hilariously fake-looking fall off of a cliff ever recorded at the end of the movie. Like, uh, maybe I'm misremembering that, but doesn't that happen? Doesn't the villain die like he gets dropped from a cliff, and it's like the most that, hilariously fake-looking drop? That I have no memory of, of, at all of. Uh, I, that I don't remember. I just remember Casey Jones is in it. They go back to feudal Japan, and. I don't remember anything when they get to feel Japan. <laughs> I'm actually going to rewatch it. I think I, at some point here, that's the one piece of like turtle childhood stuff that I didn't revisit. Cause I watched some of the eighties cartoon, you know, I watched the first two movies and then I jumped ahead past three and caught up some shit that I had never seen before. Because Did I just you watch could the, not uh, do you remember like the uh, turtles, like uh, Broadway video? Oh yeah, where they went on tour. They were like a band. <laughs> yeah. They could get the CD at Pizza Hut. I had the CD. <laughs> they, the VHS is very popular too. <laughs> um. So the the final act of this movie is like a straight, like heavy on action film. Like it's an action film. It becomes an action film in the final. You get the the like the juxtaposition between. The turtles are fighting a bunch of foot clan. Casey Jones is taking on Tatsu. He cheats to win, but guess what? It works. He gets the golf club and knocks him the fuck out. I like after he does that, that Sam Rockwell is ready to go. He's like, come on, let's go guys. Like we got, we're family here. And like everyone else is like, yeah, nah, we're leaving you to this one, buddy. And comes- you can't rely on like a bunch of 14 year old kids at the end of the day. They're not going to be faithful to you especially when they understand the concept of like old man dad strength. And they just watched like this guy knock out the guy that they're probably most afraid of on this earth. Other than Shredder, yeah. they're not going to join you, Sam. But then he, he sees the light. Of, but I don't know if he sees the light of day as much as he realizes that he's completely outnumbered. And he might as well join the winning side, but he, he becomes a part of them. But yeah, you know, I liked it during the fight at the end, you get to see like the turtle shell tuck into, you know, you don't get to see them like pull into their turtle shells at all, but you get one great use of it when, Michelangelo is about to get his head cut off and he pulls it into the shell and gives the a tremendous God, I love being a turtle. Line after he's done. <laughs> it's very much like the, uh, what's his name? Uh, line in Ghostbusters. Like I love this city. Like, like it's very much like the same thing like, on top of a New York city building, just screaming that. <laughs> so, uh, that's a, uh, who, who, which one? I forget which Ghostbuster that is. Uh, but yeah, so they fight their way to the rooftop. Uh, 
Shredder, you know, they like stand there and like make fun of his look and his name, but then he just absolutely makes short work of all four of them. Casey Jones is on the ground and he's really happy that he finds some foot soldiers down there that he can get his hands dirty with and uh backs that, you know, back the Chekhov's dump truck where he backs it into the fire escape and like places it just perfectly for Shredder to fall into. But I, you know, I like it the again. It comes down to the fact that this movie is slightly above the age that it's playing to. So Leonardo, when when Shredder talks about how Splinter's dead, he loses his cool. And there's deep down, you know, Leonardo's not going to die. But there is this genuine element of danger in that final confrontation that maybe they will kill one of the turtles when he's got him down. And he's like, you know, you're jai like your friend. But Splinter comes up, obviously, and saves the day and uh, gets his revenge because ultimately at the end of the day, even though this is the turtles movie, it's about Splinter's revenge story. You know, that's ultimately yeah. what this story is. It's his revenge story. Oh, yeah. His con a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And he just casually tosses shredder from the rooftop. And I love you. You know, you talked about the truck scene, but I love Casey Jones walking up and being like, oops, as he pushes the lever to make it crush the shredder. And he's a stinker, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. He's a big stinker. <laughs> <laughs> they never really explain how shredder's not dead in part two if i remember correctly because no he just comes in he just it's just like nah he just gets out of the the garbage can or the compactor and he's just there he returns to fight another day his, his yeah. like mat his max a little crushed he's got scars on his face but it's not it's not ever just like discussed <laughs> there's a lot of things that don't make sense in that movie. Like why would he do that to himself and become super shredder at the end? Like it doesn't. And then, and then he becomes super shredder and just rages out and punches down all the support beams that are holding the thing. That's going to crush him away over, over his head down. Like it's really stupid. Well, it's just also like, it's like the idea. One of my favorite things about like eighties movies is like, just like toxic sludge in like New York, which is the same as like the, you know, the secret of the ooze. There's this idea that there's this sludge in New York all around all the time. That was like, like in vats. It's like, I think about this all the time with, um, uh, Jason takes Manhattan. Yes. Yes. Cause he just takes somebody and puts it in like a barrel. Right. And it's just like, it, like some dude's head just corrodes basically. Well, and it spreads to other cities as well. Yeah, I used to think toxic waste was like a real and terrible danger when I was a kid. Like there was toxic waste yeah. everywhere. Uh, I thought, especially like to another New York city, city, I thought there were just barrels of it on the street everywhere. <laughs> I think probably the best use of that particular trope is uh, RoboCop, though. That would be the the pinnacle of the barrels of oh, toxic oh. sludge sitting around. Oh, 100%. <laughs> when, 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 he, when he comes out of it, like, like just like, like this mutant, and it, it's fantastic. <laughs> I still to this day believe that's what toxic waste does. Yeah, me too. I think it does. I'm never going to Google it to find out. I'm. I would rather just believe that if you go in toxic waste, you will melt. That's what happens. (laughs) But it was like a recurring thing. It's the same thing with like this turtle stuff. You know, there's there's just this ooze that just leaks somewhere in New York City (laughs) that apparently that's just a thing. And I wonder if any of these movies that use that trope were written by somebody who lived in New York or just somebody who like hated new york the concept of new york city like they're like the fucking big city they hate it and we're gonna make it look as dirty and disgusting as possible so there's like mutagenic ooze sitting all over the place <laughs> like i said I, the one i always think about is the end of uh of jason takes manhattan which is obviously in i think vancouver where they shot that or whatever the hell yeah the, 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 but or toronto like, one of the two toronto and it's just like that's a toxic waste and just like yeah i think they shot the one scene in times square that was the one thing they got uh, and, and, and it makes it makes you when you when jason looks at toxic waste flowing through the sewer and like the sewers 
like the sewer. Well, yeah. like, we, they he, get like, him at the end. They get him at the end of toxic waste, right? They they hit him at the they get him in the sewer. That's how they kill him, right? Yes, and he like looks at it and vomits water and says, "Mom, what?" Jason takes Manhattan is fucking terrible. Like I love the Jason series, but it is. And I still kind of have a soft spot for that one, but it's a bad, bad, bad sequel. <laughs> it's, it's not good. I, I find it watchable. I like it more than part seven. Part seven for me is like the, the much worse. Oh, really? See, I think, have you ever seen the, and I don't, I, I like, I'm like gritting my teeth right now because I have owned Friday the 13th on DVD digitally and i bought the shout factory blu-rays that came out and they i, I, know I, 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 I 100% got that shout factory set when it came out and i, I watched every single one of them because it was like it's still not it was still in the height of the pandemic like the height of the pandemic so i just did that every night for like a week <laughs> and a half six is my favorite in the whole series six is the fucking six is the best one six is the best one i think six is the my favorite i think four is the best example of what if i had to show somebody a friday the 13th movie that's what i would put on yeah, because it's it plays true to the formula without the like meta humor, but six yes. is just a people pleaser. Um I and then seven has a bunch have you ever seen the deleted gore from part seven? I thought they lost most of it. Well, it exists, but it's no, it exists. It's been around since the fucking yeah. DVD box set. Like you can see it, it's on that Blu-ray. That's they if they it almost makes because that's one of the reasons I don't like it. It's almost an unwatchable movie because they cut it's so poorly cut around it because of the MPA fucking them over. And the studio stepped in at the very end when uh, Tina's dad hops out of the water and he looks like a fucking normal human being. Like they, John Carl Bechler, who's a fucking effects guy and directed it, came up with this really awesome, like goopy version of her father to come out. And the studio was like, we're not using that. We're going to get an actor to jump out. He's going to look like he's never aged a day, even though he's been sitting under the water supposedly for fucking. 20 years drowned at the bottom of this lake. We're not going to make him look any different than he did when he died. <laughs> yeah. Seven just, yeah, there's something about seven. I just can't stand. I don't know why. Like the one that I've come around to now is part five. That's the one I've come to appreciate later in life. Five is really fucking violent. It is yeah. like the most exceptionally violent. It's a, it's a, it's a mean them, movie. You get the, that's the one where the guy gets the belt wrapped around his eyeballs and he twists it from behind right isn't that in that one yeah what's that director did that guy direct porn or something like that, that director's kind of fascinating right yes. yeah he, he died very recently if i remember correctly but yeah he was a, he started as a porn director like that's all he did prior to making friday the 13th part five <laughs> and it shows at certain points <laughs> yeah it's, it's a gross movie it, it, it's it, it's 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 crazy that it's a paramount movie even I know when they're making the Friday Thirteen movies, it's, it's saying that's a that it's like a major studio movie, right? Right. They they bankrolled that and they funded it and it got through all of their board. But it was making tons of money. They probably didn't give a shit. Like it was basically at that point, it was a blank check to them. Yeah, we're gonna we kill Jason in part four. We're gonna bring him back. Sure, who cares? It's not him. Who cares? Well, Just do what you funny. want. It's funny because they did do it, but I've always said they, they were so ashamed of those movies, even when they were they were like making so much bank. Well, yeah, I mean. They were, I mean, and again, I'm saying this as somebody who adores the Friday the 13th. They're, they're the lowest common denominator sort of movies. I oh, mean, they are. but it's why I appreciate them, though. It's like, you know, there's no pretension to those movies. No, kids go to a place, they have sex, they do drugs, they get killed. That's rinse and repeat. Uh, I actually like Jason Goes to Hell a Ton because it plays with that formula. Yeah, I like it. It's not my favorite. 
I've never it's never been one that's connected to me. But I, I just I, like that they. I'm actually a fan of the the remake. I thought the I think the remake's actually weirdly fun and plays with it a little bit. I, I actually am a fan of the remake too, and here's why. I've heard people bitch about the remake, but the remake. If you look at the remake as Jason Eleven, you'd love it. It's like the best sequel we've gotten in a very long time that plays true to the formula because it doesn't really feel like a reboot. Like it doesn't really, other than the opening 20 minutes, it doesn't really reboot anything. The rest of it just plays out like a Friday the 13th movie. Kids show up to Camp Crystal Lake and they die. Like that's, well, that's, that's, one, of my favorite, that's one of my favorite things is like they also do like the, the origin and the credits and then they get to, you get like a small like Friday the 13th movie and then you get another one. It, it really cracks me. I, I really enjoy that movie for that. I really like how the uh, early one ends too with Jason just leaping at that person with the machete and like right before it plunges into their head, you get the title. <laughs> like it's great. Yeah. Um, okay. So Ninja Turtles. I feel like we... we, we Sorry heard... about that. Sorry no. about that detour. <laughs> no, honestly, we pretty much finished the movie at that point. So we can move yeah. on to the soundtrack. I mean, we, we, I think we, we talked Shredder Dies. We, yeah, we, that's, that's it. Um, I, the one thing I did not that I want to bring up that's very funny is when Danny makes cool with his dad and he's like, it's just Dan now, dad. <laughs> that is such a funny... <laughs> oh, it is such a funny 14-year-old thing to say. That's like, that's just, very believable. No, they're just two men now. They're two men, you know, they're, they're two men who can see each other for who they are. <laughs> Your dad, I'm Dan. Okay, so the soundtrack. Admittedly... I didn't actually know going into this that it was only because I looked at the when I first asked you about it, I looked and saw it was 14 songs and I was like, OK, well, <laughs> like, I guess I can do this. Not that it's bad, but it's like, you know, this is a really weird time for music, as you'll see when I do the top 10 list here. But um, it's only really seven tracks. The back seven are just score stuff. So we're only going to talk about the front seven which is a, a little bit of a collection of like like mostly like New Jack and early 90s rap, which is a strange choice for this. But um. The soundtrack was released on March 16th, 1990. It actually debuted at number 82. It did pretty well. Again, that's probably kids making their parents buy them the soundtrack. Yeah, I would imagine so, yeah. The top 10, number one was Bonnie Raitt's Nick of Time. Number two was Sinead O'Connor's I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got. Number three was Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation. Number four, (laughs) that's, that's a great one. That's a great album. Number four was Paula Abdul's Forever Your Girl. Number five was Michael Bolton's Soul Provider. Number six was Alana Miles' self-titled album. I don't know who that is, actually. I didn't. I should have looked that up. Number seven was MC Hammer's Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him. Number eight was Aerosmith's Pump. Number nine was Phil Collins' But Seriously, which has a really fucking funny album cover. Not, like, intentionally funny, but very funny album cover. Number 10 was Depeche Mode's Violator. So further down the chart, these are three albums in the top 200 that never made their way into the top 10. Number 17 was Babyface's Tender Lover, which peaked at number 14. Number 36 was Digital Underground Sex Packets, which only peaked at number 24. And uh, number 57 was the Damn Yankees self-titled album, which only peaked at number 13. That one surprised me because High Enough was, or is that, yeah, High Enough was like a pretty fucking massive song for that to have not been a top 10 selling album. And like people like Ted Nugent a lot back then. Okay, so all the songs on this soundtrack are soundtrack originals unless I note otherwise. So the opening track is MC Hammer's This Is What We Do. Here's the weird thing about this, because Hammer's in this top 10 list. And I guess going into the soundtrack, coming back to it now, I guess I had just assumed that Hammer was already like the juggernaut that he was when the soundtrack came out. That was was actually what I was going to ask. Are we like in the height of like Hammer like fandom? 
No, because his album prior to this soundtrack, Let's Get It Started, which had Turn This Mother Out, which was like a popular song, but not Can't Touch This or... Um, so Can't this Touch This hasn't happened yet. Well, it... Okay, so Can't Touch This had literally just come out, but when the soundtrack was being curated, uh, no, because when Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him had come out, that album released one month prior to this soundtrack. So by this point, You Can't Touch This was a big fucking song. But it was just coincidental that it timed up with this album coming out. He was well, not lucky. a big name when that's they put him on here. Well, that was lucky for them. They probably got it for fairly cheap then. Yes, they would not. Yeah, no, it's very, very lucky on their part. Um, well, the fucked up thing is, again, talking about how Hammer was not quite a big name. There were two singles released from this soundtrack. The Hammer song was not one of them. They didn't even release this one as a single, as big as Hammer was. But, like... I'm, I'm assuming by the time that this had released, they had probably already like sort of contractually obligated themselves to release certain yeah, singles for certain artists. On I'm, I'm, I'm sure they just couldn't, they, they'd gone far too into one way. Just couldn't change directions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this song for me is the one I think I associate most with the movie, not turtle power, which I mean, turtle power rules too, but like uh, this is 100% in that sweet spot. The camera was so good out of like, catchy rap but it was like you know it's light and fun and uh the lady who does the backing vocals i couldn't find who it was is pretty good the beat's decent like this i like this song i like this one well enough yeah uh it's pretty good i, I got, i've had it stuck in my head for the last two days now this is what we do it's yeah. an earworm it sticks in my i mean i've had it in my head for just like you i mean i've been preparing for this episode for a few days now but even prior to preparing for the episode I knew that this was on here. <laughs> it just, it has been lodged in my head pretty steadily ever since then. So yeah, I like this one. And again, I, okay. I want to walk this back a little bit. When I talk about these songs, it's trying to like, I tried to go into this divorcing myself from like the nostalgic aspect and it's impossible. It's impossible. Oh, I can't do it. I will say when you listen to this, when I was listening to it, it's like, it really does take you back to a time and a place in a weird way. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's impossible to like, look at this in any other way. Like I tried I really hard. And I'll be honest. Like it wasn't, it wasn't one that I was totally aware of because I was three years old. So it's not like I was like taking it in quite as probably as much as you were. Yeah. I mean, I was at an age where I was like starting to develop my own taste in music and I was yeah. like, yeah. So I most, but again, I mostly knew these songs as like being in the background of the movie and then like playing over the end credits. So like, all right. So number two is high tech three featuring a kid K it's spin that wheel. So this is funny. This was a one-off single released a year prior High Tech 3 is actually Technotronic working under a pseudonym. Do you know who Technotronic is? No, I they're, have no clue. They're the most famous for the song Pump Up the Jam, Pump It Oh, up. yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 so, I know that song. This is them working under a pseudonym. That song also had your kid K on vocals, but in the video, they replaced her with a model lip syncing and didn't give her credit in the album for being an artist on the album until the year the album was reissued like a decade later. They like just kind of ignored that the kid K was on there and replaced her with a model. I mean, that was again, that was not an abnormal thing at this time, but like still pretty fucked up in some territories. This was released as the song. The title was spin that wheel. Turtles get real. And there were references to drug use in the original single. I spoke the mic like weed. This hypes you up like speed that they edited out of the soundtrack album. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> well, here's, this is such a 1990s fucking song like it sounds like it's like this is like that time when cnc music factory was like about to go platinum like and the thing is 
is almost incredible. If you go back to it now, knowing that it's by the same people who made Pump Up the Jam, how much it sounds like that song. Like it's almost the exact same song with different lyrics. With that said, it's not like it's, I don't know. It's not a terrible song. Like it's, it's fine. It's not something I will listen to ever again. It's very it, dated, it, but like, it's, it's fine. It's a little too long. It's like five, it's like five and a half minutes long, and I was like, "There, there, this should be about three and a half." <laughs> that was that was like my biggest thing. Like, this is way too long. Yeah, I don't think I actually made it through the five and a half minutes on any of these <laughs> any of these listens. I think maybe the first one, and then a subsequent listens, I made it through about three minutes and trimmed the fat off. <laughs> oh, most I, of these tracks are like all three two minutes. minutes too long. That that was my big takeaway. It was like, what, what's going on here? Why are these all like five and a half minutes long? Because it's only seven songs. They got to pad it out to make it worth your money. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Okay. So up next is Riff's family. So Riff, I had to, this is the one on my notes that I had to hyphenate because I kept, when I was going over my notes, I knew that when I got to this part, I was going to say it Riff family. Like that was the band's name, which is actually, I think a much cooler name. Riff family is kind of a rad band name. The Riff family. Yeah, that'd be an awesome band. Uh, Riff appeared in the film Lean on Me, the the one with Morgan Freeman. They're the uh, song oh, the, in the bathroom. The the, teach, the teacher movie, right? Yes, it's a true story or based on a true story, quote unquote true story. Uh, yeah. But Riff recorded two albums in the 90s. Uh, this one, I okay, okay. Uh, so I, I have like had to listen to a shit ton of New Jack for this soundtrack podcast so far. And I've I've. I've always had a bit of a soft spot, but I'm becoming, it's like getting even softer, I guess. So I like <laughs> this one because it sounds like it's fairly new Jackish. And Hey, look, the, the message of this is the importance of family blood or otherwise I can get behind that. But uh, like the rest of the soundtrack, it's very much of its time. You know, like it's again, a very 1990 song. Yeah. Like all these songs are like the most 1990 song. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> like every single one of them was like, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, look, this is admittedly, I will be the first to admit that this is an exceptionally lazy, like a lazily tossed together soundtrack. But again, the 10 year old Eric in me can't be too mean to it. (laughs) So mileage may vary when I'm like, this song's not that bad. If you don't know the turtles, you don't know the soundtrack. You might think I'm a fucking asshole for telling you that if you check it out based on this podcast. (laughs) Spunkadelic is the next song, 9.95. Spunkadelic actually, uh, they contributed to the Secret of the Ooze soundtrack. They have the song Creatures of Habit in that movie. Okay. I actually like this one quite a bit. Like, I like how it starts off with that wobbly vocal thing, and then it has that sort of like 80s montage song template, but then like it like it gives it's like three different songs at the beginning, and then it becomes like uh, uh, a little duet, you know, R&B vocals, the uh, really catchy chorus and the rap breakdown at the end. Like, again, the most 90 song template in the world, but it works in this one. Partners in Crime's Turtle Power. So th- these guys actually came up recently. They were in the they're on the Cool as Ice soundtrack. And during that episode, I mentioned that they just for the hell of it, like seven years ago, released another Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles theme song to their YouTube channel called Rockin' the Half Shell, which at the time, Stuart was like, did you listen to it? I had not listened to it. And then immediately after we hung up, I listened to it and like sent it to him through messages like, fuck, you got to check this out. Because, again, the song's called Rock the Half Shell. The chorus goes like this. Shredded don't like it. Rock the oh, half no. Yeah. Oh, no. It's rocking the Casbah. It's amazing. Andrew, it's fucking amazing. Um, that Will Smith went and did that again later. <laughs> yeah. It's a take. Hey, look, 
don't if it ain't broke, don't fix it, as they say. <laughs> so, but this is my favorite. This is my favorite thing in rap uh, rap uh, songs that are affiliated with movies, where it's just recounting the plot of the movie. I I, I love it. this. is one of my favorite things. Uh, can I tell you my favorite uh, version of this? And I hope yeah, this is a soundtrack in a movie you do sometime. I don't think I want to be the person on this, but um, my Wait, favorite version. Before you of this, say it, before you say what? it, I think I'm guessing it in my head, but let's see if I'm right. Well, you can go no, say it. No. Straight up, so Menace? Wanna, uh, no, it's ODB and Ghetto Superstar when he come, when he raps from the perspective of a uh, perspective of a uh, bullworth. Okay, that's a great one too. Straight up, Menace. I thought because it literally like. Bullworth's going to be a tricky one to talk about. Bullworth's oh, yeah. kind of a hard it's, one to discuss. Oh, yeah. It's a loaded conversation. <laughs> yeah. Somebody, I think Brian Quinby might have suggested that one at one point. Oh, man. Cool. That mo- I, I, I wouldn't say that movie's aged well, but man, <laughs> there's there's a lot going I mean, on. Yeah, it was. I, I have not seen it since it came out. I remember, like, it was fairly critically well liked when it came out, but, like, yeah, I was like- curious to see. Because it's like, I and mean, Benny has one of the most fascinating directorial careers because there's so few of them, and every one of them, well, some of them, they're all interesting at least. He's always swinging for something. Yeah, I uh, mean, and and Bullworth is is such an oddball choice for him to have done. I actually forgot that he directed Bullworth. It's like one of like what four or five movies he directed. Yeah, it's did like he also direct Bugsy? No, no, that's uh no, um, Barry Levinson directed Bugsy. Okay, I couldn't remember if he self directed that one. No, he was he was well he's he was hands on with every movie he ever made, but yeah, uh, no, he's not the director. I think it's okay. it's literally uh, uh, Heaven Can Wait, uh, Reds, Dick Tracy, uh, Bullworth, and then um, the last one, the Howard Hughes. Uh, uh, what's the name of that movie? Um, do you know what I'm talking about? The one that's yeah, like and I'm blanking years on old. too. Uh, it's got a weird title. It's got a funny title, actually. It's you can make a lot of jokes about, but yeah. I want to do I, Dick Tracy on here because Dick Tracy has a really interesting soundtrack thing. They released yeah, it. did. Sondheim did a lot of them. Well, there's so Dick Tracy has three soundtracks. Um, oh, well, there's, there's a, did, did Madonna did just a whole one of her own. Yeah, she just up and did her own fucking soundtrack album. She, and, she did like basically the Prince uh, Batman thing, right? Or or. Well, it's it's a little different too because I don't necessarily think she was asked to do it. So it's more along the lines of John Bon Jovi's soundtrack for Young Guns 2, where he was just like, I'm making a soundtrack for this movie that you didn't ask me to do. You can't you can't be mad when that happens. No, not at all. I think it's incredible. <laughs> um so this the the rock in the half shell, I uh so I, I actually love this one because I'm not rocking the half show. God damn it. Turtle power. I obviously like, I love this one. Actually, you know what? Going back to this one, the beat on this is pretty great for like a 1990, like a 1990 beat. It's pretty fucking solid. And I like that the dude, I don't know what his name is. Whoever the lead rapper is. Sounds like shock G from digital underground. Like uh, exactly like shock G. They have like the same vocal patterns and the same voice. But I mean, this look, look, they released a song called Rock in the Half Shell, like on their own. They didn't phone in the lyrics on this. They like definitely did their homework on like the Ninja Turtles in the movie. Like, I, I just I feel like these dudes genuinely love the Ninja Turtles and it's kind of charming. When did they release uh, Rock in the Half Shell? Like seven years ago. There's like no reason. It's not tied to anything. They just did it. The, the, that was probably it's probably one of their biggest claims to fame, too. So, you know, the, I'm sure they're just like there's a little bit. I'm not, I'm not trying to be like cynical about it, but you know. Oh, like relive glory days. Yes. 
<laughs> in the video, they're like dancing around with dudes in like really shitty turtle costumes. It's it's like a, I shot it on like an iPhone. It's fucking great. It's great. So the next track is Johnny Kemp's Let the Walls Come Down. Johnny Kemp was most famous for the song Just Got Paid, which was nominated for a Grammy, actually, in 1988. It's a really solid New Jack Swing song. He released a pair of albums, but he tragically, he drowned in 2015. So he's no longer with us. Um, I Again, look, I, I, I'm a fan of New Jack. And so I like this one. They like whistle synth thing, the weird manipulation that he does with his vocals. It's it's different than everything that came before it, but this one actually, God, I might get beat up for saying this, but it's sort of in the front half before it like eventually becomes very 1990 and becomes like a standard New Jack ballad. It yeah. almost has elements of neo soul in it, which I really liked. I did not expect to find on here anywhere. I can't. And it, neo soul didn't technically really exist. It just kind of has like some of those same elements, like accidentally, but it happened. Yeah, I think I just think dude had a really great voice, and uh, I, I dug this one. Okay, so and then we end it with Saint Paul's "Every Heart Needs a Home" from his album "Down to the Wire." So Saint Paul is actually Paul Peterson. He's worked with the time and he's worked with the family. This is the lone ballad. You know what this reminds me of? Did you ever listen to those tapes that guy put on the internet where he had worked at Kmart for like 10 years and kept all of their Kmart radio tapes? This, sound, then, this sounds familiar to me, actually. This was in a, this was actually from a prior album. So it might have been released as a single even. But it reminds me of like something you would have heard on like Kmart radio. Like that's that's what it reminds me of. I don't even know if I mean that as an insult. It just, that's just what it reminds me of. Oh, so, oh, so, oh, so that, like, that's like uh, Kmart Muzak, basically? Yeah, but um, they had their, oh my God, Andrew, do you not know about those tapes? They're incredible. No, no. So they had their own, like, soundtracks, basically, that are specifically for Kmart. Like, that was specifically, like, their own Muzak. Is that what it was? Yes. And some enterprising employee decided when they changed the tapes out every couple of months, he was going to keep the old ones. And they found they found them after, like, two decades of shit sitting in a shoebox. And then he oh, wow. uploaded all of them to the internet. You can find them. And uh, so all of them have this, like, yeah, I, honestly, it sounds like Vaporwave without trying to sound like Vaporwave. Like, it's all, like, these old tapes. So, like, the sound quality is degraded. And it's like listening to like, like A and R music from another dimension. It's really fucking. They're really fun. They're really cool. Um, I'm gonna check this out. This one, I, I feel like I heard about this, but I don't think I ever checked this out. I'm actually gonna check this out. I'm going to like stay on you about this because they're very okay. they're very readily available. I have a whole bunch okay. on my computer, so uh, yeah. But that's what this reminds me of. Again, I don't know if I mean that as an insult or a compliment because it doesn't sound like the music tape specifically. Because again, those have that sort of degraded quality that adds to them. But this sounds like a song that would be on one of those tapes. Yeah, shopping at Kmart music. <laughs> Take that how you will. Okay, so the rest of the soundtrack collects the score, and those songs that are included are shredder sweet splinters tail subway attack shredders big entrance those are all by jean du perez it's a pretty good score actually I, it, it, it is it's a decent score well jean du perez is uh he was a member of modern romance this uk band and he did a lot of score work uh he's also done some, the score for and there's a whole bunch of things but just to name three once bitten a fish called wanda and uhf are all films that he's done scores for oh, so he's, really? he's got his yeah he's been around um he was, he was having quite a run back then then yeah, yeah, and it, it's yeah, like you said, I actually think the score work is incredibly good in this. Like, it works very well. You could have easily just released a score album and not put the soundtrack in here, but uh, that that plays into a later question here. So I can hear, I can hear the score in my head right now, which is usually what I think of what is an actually good score. If I can actually think of the theme, if I the theme can, I can hear it in my head. It's my problem yeah. with most. It's, it's it's my biggest problem with like a lot of modern day scores where it's like I just can't remember anything from it. It's like. 
why would you make all these Marvel movies and not give any of these heroes like a recognizable theme or anything? Right. Yeah. I, I, I don't understand it. Um, I guess it's just that I, again, though, I think it might even come down to the fact that like nobody really buys this shit anymore. So they're not like, like, you know, if you could, if you could be as a score composer, like put together a really good score, they put the album out and people buy that and you get paid on the back end for that. Cool. But like, why would you even try if like the movies don't really seem to give a shit and you're not going yeah. to make anything extra off of it? You know, <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't, and that sounds cynical too. Like it comes down to money, but that's probably not far off. I don't know. I have some theories about it. I don't know. It's just weird. It's weird to me how there's just, we don't have recognizable movie themes anymore. No, you're not wrong though. You're not wrong. Well, all right. So songs in the movie that weren't on the soundtrack, absolutely none. Everything on this soundtrack is in the movie. Uh, is it on Spotify? Only Turtle Power and Spin That Wheel. And the entire John Perez score is on there, but it's a separate playlist altogether. Like that whole score, the stuff that's not on the soundtrack that's in the movie is on the... Um, I should add, sorry, when I say songs in the movie, not on the soundtrack, that doesn't include all of John DePerez's score. I'm talking like as far as original motion picture soundtrack sort of songs. Everything in this soundtrack is in the movie. But there is a separate playlist for his score. Do the two go well together? Do you think this soundtrack works with the movies? Taking the score out of the equation, do you think the songs in the soundtrack work with the movies? (laughs) I don't either, but I can't imagine them without, I can't imagine the movie without them at this point. So like, I kind of, yes, I guess they do. Well, I I mean, I think they use them in a way where they're barely noticeable in the film. I mean, they're kind of sometimes, but it's not like something you're like totally aware of when they're in the movie. No, and I, I agree with that. But at the same time, like, because, yeah, there's they're straight up background noise in the movie, basically. I, I don't find them distracting in any, in any way. Let's, let's just say that. Okay. Yeah, that's that's good. That's good. They feel like afterthoughts, but at the same time, like, I still know these songs by heart. Like, at least this is what we do in Turtle Power without ever having listened to this soundtrack as a whole. So that says something for it. Yeah. Do you have a top three, top three songs? Uh, this is what we do. Turtle Power. And uh, I think I, I don't have a third one, actually. My top three is MC Hammer's This Is What We Do, Partners in Crime's Turtle Power, and at number three, I'm putting that Spunkadelic 9.95 song on there. I had to, I had to fill it out. This was a, this was a tough one, too, because I was like, there's seven songs, and I don't really know like what, uh, what I would do here. So, um, all right. Oh, I just realized, you know what, Andrew? I left part of this out. So we're going to do this one in a different order here. Andrew, would you consider this movie an essential? Would you say stream it, or would you say skip it? This is essential. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, what about the soundtrack? Essential, stream it, skip it, or cherry pick songs off of it? I'm going to be nice and say cherry pick songs off of it. Hey, that's about what I would go with too. I don't necessarily think it's a complete waste, but you got the no. good score stuff at the end, and you've got this is what we do in Turtle Power. Like the, you, you could pick a couple songs off here and probably have a decent enough time. Okay, so as far as further watching, further listening, I went through a really, as I said, I went through a really big turning Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles revival for myself a few years ago, and I found two incredibly fun animated movies that have come out in the last like 10 or 10, 15 years that involve the Ninja Turtles to the two that I'm going to talk about that. I want to, and I'm serious. If you have not watched any Ninja Turtles stuff, but you grew up with the Ninja Turtles, I think they're on like HBO max or Disney plus or something. But the two that I'm going to mention are Ninja Turtles versus Batman, which is a fucking really fun movie. It's PG-13. Yeah. Shredder like decapitates. Now that you don't see blood, but like there's a part where Shredder cuts a guy's head off and you see like the guy's ankles and then the head drops down and the guy's body falls over. So like it's PG 13. It doesn't feel like at any point, like they're trying to be like, we're the turtles, but we're edgy now. Like it works well. Uh, and it's very funny. 
But the real, the real gem here, and honestly, I may put it, I would probably, if I were ranking every Turtles thing, it would sit number two right below this movie, is Turtles Forever. The concept of Turtles Forever is, it's like a multiverse thing, basically. And this is like before Spider-Verse and all that. The I've 19, seen this. You've seen it before? Yeah, I've seen it. I watched it. It's pretty cool. It's fucking fun. It made me laugh so hard. It's the 80s Turtles cartoon ends up in the universe with the 2000s Turtles cartoon. And it's like the, you know, the more serious 2000s Turtles dealing with the like Kawabunga party dude 80s Turtles. And it is a really fun movie. I I just had such a fun time with it. And uh, as far as further listing, this is a tricky one because like, you know, uh, I don't, there's seven songs and like, what am I going to tell you? Listen to like MC hammers, like, you know, like, so I guess what I'll go with is I mentioned that Johnny Kemp's just got paid song is very good. So if you want to listen to something else further from this soundtrack related to the soundtrack, uh, you can find that song pretty easy on Spotify. And like I said, it was that night. It was nominated for a Grammy. It's a pretty solid new Jack song. So have you ever seen the 2000, I think it's 2005, the, the TMT MT movie. Have you ever seen that one? No, you know what? That is one that I have been meaning to catch up with because I heard that was very good. I didn't catch it at the time that it came out for whatever reason. I wanted to. And uh, when I was going through this Turtles phase, I, by the time I got to where I was like, I should watch that, I was a little Ninja Turtled out. So I was like, I'll come back to that one. So it's pretty, I it's pretty solid. It, 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 it's solid. And like, it's like what we talked about earlier. It, it focuses on uh, Leonardo versus Ra- Raphael and that relationship. It, it's good. Yeah. I, you know what? I'm actually noting that down on my list is something that like, I, I've threatened to watch it a million times and have not gotten around to it. So I'm keeping that like right at the top of my list of things. I like, that, actually got, like a, that movie got, actually got like a theatrical re- release and fairly decent reviews. If I remember correctly. Yeah. Cool. Did, All right. Yeah. I, I'm glad you, I didn't see, I didn't know if you had anything for this, so I didn't mean to like try to gloss over you there as no, you were no. trying to say it. Um, okay. Well, that's the Ninja Turtles movie and the soundtrack. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this with me. Well, thank you for having me. I had, I had a great time. And uh, let everyone know where they can find you. Tell them about the Weezer bracket, whatever you want to tell them about. The floor is yours right now. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Jim Jarmish hair. That's probably that's probably the uh, social media I use the most and probably the best. <laughs> you, can find my, you can find my uh, podcast, Weezer Bracket, with my partner, Nick Robb, Nick Robinson, wherever you, you listen to podcasts generally. Uh, uh, it should be up there. Uh, and yeah, like I said, check me out on Twitter. Let me ask you a question. But I say when I said that again, I'm talking for a while and I flub shit up. Did I say Weezer Boys when I said tell them about your podcast, or did I say Weezer Bracket? I feel like I might have combined the two that? podcasts. I okay, think, okay. I think you said Weezer, okay. Weezer Bracket, but I didn't know this. If you did, I might have said Weezer Boys. But <laughs> let's let's do a new podcast called Weezer Boys. We might have just come up with a good like, idea. It's like a mi- it's a it's a mixture of Weezer and Doughboys. I'm like, uh, yeah, that, that makes total sense. <laughs> all right well andrew once again thank you so much i will put all that stuff in the episode description and everybody listening at home thank you so much for all of your support ain't no use running ain't nowhere to hide the beast is coming and he's got you in his sights he ain't gonna miss you, and he ain't gonna mess around If you're a movie with original songs The soundtrack I'm gonna
You die!